102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. There has been a lot of controversy around information or disinformation tied to the coronavirus and elections this year. How information has been conveyed, shared, and acted upon has divided the country, in particular, the spread of disinformation. Today, I'm talking with Professor Philip Napoli, a leading expert on media, democracy, and public policy. He has researched and written quite a bit on these topics, including in his latest book, Social Media and Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. We will be talking about disinformation in the digital age and how we can counter disinformation. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Professor Nopoli. Oh, my pleasure. Now, there are terms like misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. There's a lot going on with our information. It sounds like disinformation is the most problematic. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it is getting complicated. And the interesting thing is a lot of times what category we're talking about, you know, is it a function of, of intent? And that's obviously a tricky thing to, to know. So, yeah, so disinformation we define as falsities that are intentionally disseminated. Misinformation are falsities that are not intentionally disseminated and Malinformation uh, is actually true information that's being used out of context to mislead. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of different types of uh, problematic information out there these days. But it seems like this year with the coronavirus and the elections, disinformation was the biggest problem? Yes. I mean, there's, there's so few mechanisms for deterring bad actors. Now, again, it's always hard to, to, you know, to determine intent, but, I mean, there's so much blatant falsity out there that it's very hard to imagine it was accidental. <laughs> now, again, there's plenty of people who, who are on the receiving end and then circulate it and maybe truly believe the disinformation, and now when they share it, they become purveyors of misinformation. So they interact with each other, too. According to Pew Research, around 20% of people are getting their news from social media, like about the coronavirus outbreak or the election. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because if you, if you think about social media platforms as distributors of news, we've never had a distributor of news in any of our previous media technology eras that knew less about the content that they were distributing and about the sources they were distributing. I mean, that's, that's the downside of the scale at which these platforms operate. I had a student today, just see what happens, I told him. And he went and started up his own news site on Facebook. That is, the criteria, what Facebook asks to determine whether you're actually a news organization is so minimal. I think my student today, he, I think he called it Potemkin News. But he's, he's, a, he's a news organization on Facebook now. And it's free to disseminate whatever he wants under the heading of being a news organization. And that was two minutes of work of his on, on the Facebook interface. So there's very little oversight here. And, that, and, and so that's the problem when people rely on social media for news, is it's a space in which the barriers to entry are so low, the degree to which they're able to check the accuracy and reliability is still so limited, and their willingness to even do all that remains to some extent limited. Certainly, it's gotten better in the days leading up to and after the election. 
And then, of course, we add to that news consumers who we know, data tells us, oftentimes share things without even reading them. And so they're not being very critical. So it's a it's an ecosystem that really breeds. And then we haven't even talked about the algorithms and the role that they play and how they are programmed to respond to the most engaging type of content. And for, unfortunately, that tends to be disinformation or polarizing content. So there's just layer upon layer of characteristics that, again, don't apply to uh, previous generations of, of how we distributed news. Do you believe social platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and even Google should be regulated? Oh, that is such a tough question. As I say, the short answer is yes, and the long answer, though, is that it's a, it's a very complicated problem to solve. Because I think one thing we all probably feel like, or many people feel like in the wake of the past few years, is that it's scary time to imagine our government playing a more proactive role in making any sort of determinations about what is and what is not true. You know, I think we've sort of emerging from what we would, uh, might describe as a worst-case scenario. So we'd like a regulatory framework that could be resistant to government abuse. So some sort of model where there's sort of a government-mandated third-party governance structure Something like that probably is the is the most viable way forward because nor do we want to completely rely on the platforms themselves to self-regulate because they haven't, unfortunately, really proven themselves to be up to the task. Do you think the same standards should be applied to public figures as to normal citizens in terms of what they post? Oh, that's another interesting question. I believe it's Twitter that in some cases has used a metric in terms of how many followers you have that will determine how you are treated. And of course, yes, government officials get treated differently. And there's this interesting balance between the concerns about what is newsworthy and what is of, of, of public importance on one side versus on the other side, becoming a passive conduit for government propaganda. This is where the very identity of these platforms comes into play. You know, we often refer to the press as the fourth estate, right, as a, as a part of our system of checks and balances. And the reality is the scope at which these platforms operate, they need to start thinking of themselves that way to some extent as well, to, or certainly to a greater extent than they currently do. Nothing is scarier at this point, I think, than these platforms being passive conduits for government-produced disinformation. And being and that label of being a government figure should not be a, a badge of immunity from being fact-checked, from being filtered out if, if what you're saying is hateful or likely to incite violence or is likely to, to people engaging in behaviors that are dangerous to their health. The list goes on and on. But it isn't just social media platforms that are delivering disinformation, right? Now we have these new news websites that are popping up every day, and there are no fact-checking requirements, and if they can control Google search with paid campaigns, their information will more likely to come up, and they can control what people are seeing. Absolutely true. And what we've seen as of late, you know, we're, we're all getting reminded about the role that, you know, an old medium like cable news even plays in this disinformation ecosystem. It would be a mistake to focus purely on, on social media platforms as, as the problem. Now, what social media platforms facilitate is, is the creation of virality. I mean, they are the, uh, the distribution mechanism for whether it's prominent one, at least, for some of these type of websites you're talking about, for how video clips on news networks go viral. So they certainly help in the distribution. But no, it's absolutely true. Now, the, the big difference, of course, and, you know, we could think about the, the 90s when, when we had a vibrant web, uh, worldwide web, and the difference was it was incumbent upon individuals to go out and 
seek that content out. They had to be a little more proactive. Certainly, as you point out, they can encounter it in their search results, but we've been lucky to some extent that the search engines are have done a bit of a better job of filtering out and downranking uh, falsity than the social platforms have. But yeah, one of the biggest problems we're experiencing right now across the U.S. is the rise of these hyper-partisan local news sites that look like a traditional local news source, but are in fact run and, and owned and, and funded by partisan actors, whether it's political consultants or political action committees, and in some cases are actually taking payment from politicians and campaigns to run stories that their clients are requesting. So it's a real corruption of, of how local news work. Um, but these sites are able not only to sort of exist online and attract audience that way and through, through search, but also to attract an audience through social media. So then we have a multiple layer problem to solve. That is That's exactly like. the way to describe it, a multiple layer problem. Well, what's interesting to me is, have you seen the film A Social Dilemma? I've not seen it. In it, one narrative was about the fact that if you put in climate change... The algorithm may give you something completely different if you're on the East Coast versus the West Coast. And you think that climate change, there's only one term or description for it. But it was interesting because the way the information's fed to you is based on your likes and dislikes and your opinions and views, right? Everybody's getting a different set of information on climate change alone, which then leads me to believe that there's no neutral set of information that's being delivered, right, to everybody across the board. Everybody's getting information now tailored to them based on the algorithm. Right. Every media sector these days, that's their holy grail is to be able to provide more and more personalization. That that is the assumption is that that leads to greater engagement, greater satisfaction with the with the product or the service. On the other side of the equation, it also is the case that part of the problem is that in these newer contexts like search, like social, the data points are just there for the taking, and these platforms just scoop them up. It's so easy to modify your service in this in these ways. I mean, in the early days of search, the primary criterion in, in terms of, of the ranking of search returns was simply how many other sites linked to a source and how often was it clicked on. And it was this very rudimentary set of, of criteria that determined search return rankings. Over time, the number of signals that, that a search engine like Google incorporates into what it delivers back to you has, has grown dramatically. Well, what's interesting is the film argues that that's what's creating the divide, right? If people are not getting the same information, everyone's getting different information based on their biases in the first place. They're not going to see anything the same way. So when you add on the news sites, you add on the social platforms, then the divide gets greater and greater. And the, then the question leads to, it doesn't feel like the government really understands the technology platforms, so they don't know what to do with it. And it seems like we need a digital minister who's going to basically say, okay, these platforms have to have certain standards. Well, did you say that? I mean, at one point we had in the U.S. something called the Office of Technology Assessment. It was created in the 70s to provide advice on a whole range of technology matters, got eliminated in the mid-90s for reasons that in some ways are echoes of, of the political environment that we are experiencing now. One of the reasons it was eliminated because it was perceived as uh, having an anti-Republican bias in, uh, in the nature of the research and the advice that they were giving. So uh, it was defunded by Congress in the, in the mid-90s. And in many ways, that has left a, 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 you know, a bit of a gaping hole. 
there were some, I, th- I believe it was Andrew Yang, who was one of the Democratic candidates for, for president, who was promising to bring it back. So, yes, there's, and, and none of the existing regulatory agencies that we, you know, whether it's the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Trade Commission, an obvious and a particularly good fit for the range of, of issues that we're talking about, as far as there being some sort of government body to, uh, to take the lead here. But you think it should be a separate entity in terms of like a consumer reports type of agency? that labels whether the standards are being met for fact-checking or integrity? Or do you think that there has to be some kind of oversight agency, though, that you know says, okay, the way the technologies apply, it's basically manipulating what people are seeing or not seeing? Yeah, how we structure this is the interesting question. I, I've often thought about it actually something like, you know, if you think about PBS, our, our public broadcaster, we have the, pub, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that receives funding, and then it then distributes funds to the various entities in the public broadcasting system. So there's a, a bit of an insulation from, from Congress, for example. Uh, could we imagine some sort of model like this in this space where there is some sort of government agency for whom this area falls within their authority, but it is that they then facilitate the creation of an arm's length co-regulatory body, some sort of council that perhaps audits algorithms, sets standards for data practices, maybe imposes limitations on micro-targeting, all all these various things that, you know, that have been proposed as as of late, set standards for what percentage of effectiveness in terms of disinformation identification and, and removal is happening, putting it out of the immediate reach of a government that we is a worst-case scenario protection. But certainly we need some change to the status quo that we have now, because especially in the wake of this election, we are seeing unprecedented levels of, of disinformation online, on social media in particular. And well, one can't help but wonder whether it, if this is the new normal. If this election outcome has essentially ratcheted up the problem to a greater degree, Permanently. What's interesting is the technology industries used to have nonprofits that would oversee the standards for the industry. They would set up their own nonprofits, mm-hmm. right? Where the body was comprised of people from different sectors, and then they'd figure out what that technology standard would be. But it feels like that it's the platform has become bigger than the people running it themselves. It's overtaken them and. There's no right answer because they're kind of caught in this situation where they don't know what the right answer is. Well, yeah, and they all operate unilaterally. You know, Facebook's policies uh, are very different from Twitter's, which are very different from YouTube's. And as more of these platforms, which are very different from the, the new hyperpartisan platforms that are gaining so much traction now, like Parler. And that's what's interesting is as, as these proliferate and sort of fragment the social media audience a bit more, you could argue that that creates uh, an even greater need for some degree of standardization across them as far as how they deal with these problems. Otherwise, they say water flows downhill. It's, this information is always going to find the platforms where it can, can thrive the most. These technology companies have huge lobbying presence in Washington. And there were some news articles that are indicating that people from certain technology companies will be holding roles in the new administration. Do you think this will help or hurt the need for disinformation to be addressed? That's a good question. I don't know if it's a blanket yes or no. It so much depends on the individuals. But I also think 
I'd love to be hearing news about folks from the public interest and advocacy community around tech policy finding their way into administrative positions as well. I do not like the idea of it being a exclusively tech executives advising in this space, because even the most well-meaning and public interest-oriented tech executive is going to have perspectives that might not be the same and might not consider all the range of factors as, again, you know, say uh, someone who's been working in the public interest and advocacy space. Uh, I think there's incredibly smart people in that space who really should be part of these conversations. Now we have added complications of manipulated videos or deep fakes. It begs the question that we should be putting labels on all information across the board. I know. It, it, needs, uh, it needs nutrition labels or labels like the cigarette packages have. The challenge here is the scale at which it, it needs to be done. Collectively, our governments, other governments, we all made this decision really in the 90s and passed legislation specifically designed to allow these kind of platforms to grow as big as they could, as fast as they could. And there has been very little, if any, efforts along the way to require of them to demonstrate the capacity to operate effectively at these scales that they have have ramped up to. Uh, There's never been criteria that needed to be met to allow them to continue to grow. So we let them grow first, and now we try to cope with the problems of them being as big as they are. And they were often the very first ones to say, wow, that's, we're too big to solve that problem. There are too many users, uh, there's too much video being posted, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we can't lose sight of the irony that we, we allowed that to happen and that that now becomes a valid excuse. You know, we're, we're too big to do a good job on this or that. Hopefully somebody else will be creating some kind of standards body for the lab- labeling of the information, right, versus the companies doing it themselves. That would be preferred, I would think. And that would take their responsibility off of them where they're considered to be biased if they decide to choose one particular tweet over another. Platforms themselves, and Mark Zuckerberg has been very vocal about this in a variety of contexts, in a variety of scenarios, that he welcomes regulation, that he would rather the company not be arbiters of various content categories. The government playing a, a central and proactive role there is, is scary for whole other sets of reasons. This is not sort of the ultra-simplified notion of these platforms don't want to be regulated. They're, I think in some contexts, they might welcome a, a framework that then they were that they could apply. So let's say if this, it's a nonprofit agency that comes up with the standards framework, it would take the pressure off of them to basically decide what's appropriate and not appropriate because they can then have this nonprofit agency decide what is appropriate or not, right? What gets labeled right. and what doesn't get labeled. Right. I mean, it's not all that different from what, what Facebook does now and Google does now, to, uh, where they rely on third-party fact-checkers who are verified members of the International Fact-Checking Network. And those entities get to play a role in determining what is and what is not labeled as false uh, on, on the platforms. What about the major media networks like CNN and Fox, which have been attacked by the current administration as well as by the citizens of this country? How should we view the news outlets? Like, for example, apparently New York Times reported that Australians have protesting Rupert Murdoch's influence on the world elections through his media outlets. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that their citizens are taking it to the government and say, do something about it. Right. And, you know, that was the big media policy question 
in this country before the web and social media sort of displaced to some extent a lot of these these companies. I mean, we we had longstanding concerns about concentration of of media ownership and audience attention being limited to a, a, a select few sources. You know, if you look at the audience on a given day for a CNN or Fox News, it's it's not that big, but the people who, who watch it watch it a lot and watch it for a very long time. Content and those ideas then get circulated on social media platforms, certainly. Traditional approach has been, oh, maybe we try to, to, to break these up. In the case of, of Murdoch, that's a, it's a global scale you know, media conglomerate he's been able to build. But, you know, by traditional measures of competition, there's nothing approaching a, a monopoly there. But I think it's, it's so especially in, in this particular moment, these are more questions almost of, of journalistic social responsibility. I mean, if you watch a Fox News, and it's been well documented at this point that there's even conflict within Fox News, that the folks who work there during the day are trying to do journalism, and the folks who show up to do the primetime programming are doing nothing of the sort, and in fact will say things that contradict what the news folks said earlier in the day. So I think part of the problem is, is we t- use this blanket term news, and we talk about a Fox or a CNN as news networks. Part of the day they are, but at night they revert to something very different. You know, the term we used to use, we used to call it public affairs. You know, it was news and there was public affairs. And public affairs was the opinion and analysis and discussion of the day's events. And those were separate categories of programming. Even the FCC defined them as separate categories of programming. Now we call these networks news networks, but they are, they are done for most nights. They are done providing anything that we would call journalism by the time 8 p.m. rolls around. They're doing something very different. Is it possible to spot this information? Oh, there's all sorts of tools out there and all sorts of rules of thumb to spot disinformation. Are they foolproof? Absolutely not. Part of the problem, but we could talk about them and listen, but part of the problem is the, you know, it starts with the individual. Just like smoke, you have to want to not be misinformed first. You have to truly value and care about whether your news is accurate and reliable. And that means you cannot be guided by your need for what we call confirmation bias. You cannot be out there looking to satisfy your need for news and information that confirms your existing worldview. You need to get over that hump first. But then after that, absolutely. There, you know, there's ways of even spotting questionable posts on a social media platform, you know, what, you know, what, ranging from when you click on a story, is there a byline? Is there an actual person associated with the story? It's very easy to do research on individual sites. There are tools out there. There are online tools like NewsGuard, All Sides, that you can enter in the name of individual sources that you're encountering and learn quite a bit about them. Who funds them? Do they follow accepted practices in terms of sourcing and transparency and making clear who their funders and ownership are? But all this, you know, this, this is all puts work and burden on the end user. And not everybody's ready, willing, or able to, uh, to incur the time and, and the labor involved. Yes, I would do it. But it, it does, after each article, it would become very labor intensive. So it sounds like people right. revert to their favorite channel or outlet. Yep. And, and these days, what that means, unfortunately, is that your favorite channel or outlet can can be the exact source of the problem. We know that survey research tells us that people differ dramatically in what they consider their most trusted news sources. And it's become so partisan. And, and, the, and the unfortunate fact of the matter is, whether we're talking about the far right or the far left, that partisanship as far as a news source and the likelihood of disseminating false information are correlated. It's, partisan news is not just about slant. It's not just about story selection. It unfortunately also is about being more likely to misinform their audience. Interesting. 
What can we proactively do to stop the spread of disinformation? Within a social media context, I think it's read anything that you, comes up in your newsfeed thoroughly and investigate the source and verify the accuracy as to the extent possible before you share it. Rule of thumb that I've tried to explain to folks even in my family is, look, if you have a source that you like and they're reporting a story, and if you go Google it and that source is the only source reporting that story. And you're not seeing that in a you know, larger or more reputable or more established news outlet. That's a red flag. People tend to rely on their niche news sources and, and, and assume that they're getting something that is also being circulated more widely. Oftentimes it's not, uh, or at least not yet. So that's, you know, that's something you can do. But I think also most importantly is to go back to sort of revert a bit to the old model of how we consume news. Don't follow the news is important, it will find me model, which is where you wait for your social media feed to push things to you. Identify reliable sources of news and information and access them directly. Why let your social network, why let algorithms intermediate your relationship with the news? Interact directly with the news sources that your research tells you are trustworthy. What's really interesting is I read three different news outlets to see how they're presenting the same topic. It's just different how each outlet is presenting it, which is interesting. Yeah, and sometimes you ask yourself, is that people say, oh, you should read both sides. Well, okay. Um, I think what we need is is a way of, of pushing our news organizations back to trying to be appealing to folks on both sides of the political continuum and not fragment us. That's a really good point. Thank you for sharing your expertise, and thank you for joining me on Spark today, Professor Napoli. Oh, my pleasure.